بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله بخير ما حمده الحامدون الحمد لله حمد الذاكرين الشاكرين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد النبي الخاتم الأمين وحبيب رب العالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين ويبيجن الدنيا والله If we ever try to count Allah's blessings upon us, we will soon discover that it is impossible. So we extend our gratitude and express our gratitude towards Allah and we pray for peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad and upon all the Prophets of Allah and upon the Prophet's family and his companions and his followers until the final day. It doesn't come as news to any of you that our anchor in every day and age and even in the day and age in which meanings and terminology and concepts and meaning and, and expressions become confused and diluted and obfuscated. Our anchor in all of this is the Qur'an and it will always be the Qur'an. Those who hold steadfast to the Qur'an and reflect upon it and make it a part of their soul and their life and their intellect. Will thrive. And those who allow their relationship to the Qur'an to weaken and to dwindle away, they will suffer the consequences of that in confusion and loss at a minimum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, giving us one of these foundational, indeed existential instructions, a sort of anchoring an orientation as to how we, <clears throat> those who call themselves Muslims, what their attitude, what their demeanor, what their stand, and what their meaning in life should be. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَجَاهِدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِهِ هُوَ اشْتَبَاكُمْ وَمَا جَعْلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرَجٍ ملة أبيكم إبراهيم 
هو سماكم المسلمين هو سماكم المسلمين من قبل وفي هذا وفي هذا ليكون الرسول شهيدا عليكم وتكونوا شهداء على الناس فأقيموا الصلاة وآتوا الزكاة واعتصموا بالله هو مولاكم فنعم المولى ونعم النصير Strive in the way of your Lord Struggle and strive through the theology of jihad because jihad is a theology of course as you know jihad is not necessarily military conflict but it's an attitude towards life understand that if you wish Allah if you want Allah then you must strive and struggle towards that goal you cannot sit back and rely upon hopeful thinking or whimsies but to have the blessings of touching the heavens of catching a glimpse of the heavens while you are on this earth requires a level of strive and struggle investment of energy and time that is properly called haqq jihad the, the genuine true jihad He selected you. Allah in Allah's glory selected you. And in selecting you in this process of appointing you with a special task as those who strive in the way of Allah, Allah did not mean for this or did not intend for you that this would be a selection of tribulation or hardship. has very broad and sweeping implications. It's supposed to shape our attitude towards law. It's supposed to shape our attitude towards ethics. And it's supposed to shape our attitude towards society and a lot of other things, as I will point out in a little bit. The hardship, there are many reasons that human beings could could instigate and incite hardship in their own life. And uh, our relationship with Allah should navigate us to Dar es Salaam, should navigate us to the abode of peace, to the land, to the state of tranquility, 
the jurisdiction of peace and tranquility, not a state of rancor, anger, envy, and all the other human emotions that eat away at the soul and cause human beings true hardship. It is a simple <clears throat> expression, but with so many profound meanings. Millata Ibrahim, Muslimin, this is truly the face of the Prophet Abraham he called you a Muslimin. He called you Muslims. He called you those who are in a state of submission and recognition and a state of tranquility and repose towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, you have been chosen as Muslims, Ishtabakum, he has selected you, but this selection is not based on a racial factor, or ethnic, or tribal, or linguistic, but it is based on a relationship. If you are among those who struggle in the path of Allah, if you are among those who are committed to the struggle. And if you are among those who understand that with Allah, if you find Allah, you will find the true source of happiness and the true source of tranquility, the true state of meaning. If you are among those who understand that existentially without Allah, nothing makes sense but with Allah then your life has a purpose and has consequences which is a foundational principle for morality itself if you are among those then you are selected then you are among those that Allah has chosen now, of course, this is a direct response to the concept of the chosen people, a people chosen because of some unborn or unearned quality, something that people are just born into. In Islam, what makes you chosen is that you accept that idea to jahidu that you struggle in the path of Allah for Allah, seeking out Allah, a true and genuine and authentic jihad. Now, Allah reminds us in this that the Prophet Muhammad, while we are Muslims from the time of the Prophet Ibrahim The Prophet Muhammad is a witness upon us. 
indeed, in his lifetime, the Prophet bore witness as to those who lived in his age. But when we face Allah, there is a critical task that we inherited from the Prophet a task that Allah reminds us of so that you will bear witness upon people. So if we try to put it together again, bearing witness, and this is not just in Islam, but this is even a theologies that predated Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Bearing witness is immoral position and immoral task. To be able to bear witness. And Allah knows that bearing witness is not easy. It is not easy. Human beings, if they bear witness, in their social and political interactions, they could suffer numerous consequences, profound consequences, because often people don't want to be confronted with truthful narratives. Often people if they're reminded of their weaknesses and faults, they resist that in, in, in numerous ways. But especially, especially when you bear witness against the greatest corrupting source in human existence, and that is power. If you bear witness against power, the consequences are profound. And Allah reminds us that it ought not be so. Those who think about what are the basic moral and ethical foundations of a society whose ethics is consistent with the ethics of Islam let me put it to you this way. If you want to create a society that is ethically consistent with Islam, you create a society in which bearing witness does not lead to hardship, not even destruction, but even just hardship. For all those who think that it is okay to organize society in which societies in which you arrest people and torture people and in which you can silence people what they often miss what they often miss is that bearing witness is a sacred task a sacred job for a society 
to be organized in such a way in which power can silence others, by definition, that is a society where bearing witness becomes costly. And if bearing witness is costly, that is haraj, that is hardship. And that hardship is inconsistent with the covenant that we inherit from the time of the Prophet Ibrahim to the time of the Prophet Muhammad Now, the theology of bearing witness and its prerequisites should, in principle, resolve so many issues about what we in our day and age call freedom of speech, freedom of thought, democracy, this whole spiel. Try to imagine a state in which it is possible to bear witness for Allah, but But if the state is despotic, let me put it another way. If the state is despotic, it is impossible to bear witness for Allah without harash. By the nature of things, by the nature of things, if your commitment in society is a commitment towards real politique, Machiavellian politics, if your commitment is towards simply the idea of maximizing self-interest at, at, at any expense, even if it is at, at the expense of others, bearing witness as a matter of principle becomes a costly proposition. And if so, that society is built upon foundations in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have a sharik. It becomes a society where founded on principles that leads to shirk in the society associated partners with Allah. To put it bluntly, put it bluntly, societies that are built on despotism, whether people like it or not, despotic societies breed hypocrisy in the heart. Why? Because when I want to bear witness subconsciously, even if not consciously, I know that if I speak a certain narrative that will please those in power, 
I will be rewarded. But if I alter my narrative and clash with those in power, there will be harsh, there will be hardship. Human nature is such that your intellect justifies, rationalizes whatever narrative will minimize pain and maximize the opposite of pain. It doesn't even need to be pleasure. It's simply pain avoidance. That's our nature. So if I know that my narrative will lead to the pain of poverty, denial of jobs, the pain of my children being harmed some way, the pain of isolation, marginalization, the pain of going to prison, the pain of charges by the state against me, whatever the pain is, even if subconsciously, even if it's not done consciously, my shahada, bearing witness for me, will naturally flow, not in Allah's favor, not in the Prophet ﷺ's favor, it will flow in the favor of those who hold power. If you notice, if you take any human being who has a job and earns a salary from that job, try to go to this person and convince him of anything that might bring an end to the salary. And you yourself will see how they will do rationalizing cartwheels in order to justify whatever is the source of their income. That's our human nature. We, the minute our lower base selves are fed, we, we have a very primitive, intuitive part of us that responds to this by rationalizing whatever feeds that primitive basic self. It rationalizes it, it is defensive towards it, it wants to maintain it, it takes a real jihad, a real jihad, for us to go counter to what serves that primitive sense in us, whatever feeds us and closes us and houses us. But in these types of situations, bearing witness for a law in truth rather than those who are Allah's partners in power in despotic societies. In other words, those who hold power become de facto partners to Allah because you bear witness for them. For them. And when you do so, the entire formula that the Quran set out for a humanity with meaning and purpose 
has been undermined and has fallen apart. Allah has made it clear. Now, especially, keep in mind that this is especially so in the modern age. Because while in the, in the past, I could live in a despotic kingdom, but I could go live in the margins of this kingdom rather than the urban centers and live a relatively peaceful life. You know, if the government's soldiers come to my village once a year to collect taxes, I might escape during that year to the mountains and disappear for a few weeks and then come back. And in other words, I can live avoiding the state for the most part. That has become impossible in our modern age. You can't avoid the state. You can't avoid human power. But on the other hand, when the state has become so powerful, what should counterbalance that is an equally powerful theology of truthfulness and sincerity towards Allah. So in other words, when the state becomes so powerful, our theology as Muslims should become equally powerful in saying, no, we don't want to live in a shirk state, a state in which the ruler is despotic, all-knowing, and all-righteous, but a state where we can bear witness for Allah without harash, without there being consequences that cause suffering and pain. And this is essential for us to remain truthful in the path of Allah. And part of this, by the way, is also a rejection of theocracy, because if I want to bear witness on, on the behalf of Allah, and there is a group of clergy that controls very clearly what my relationship to Allah should be and defines it and says, this is the way you will bear witness or else the entire dynamic has fallen apart. Now, why do I say this? Because in our day and age, Once upon a time, not too long ago, our problem in the Muslim world was something called Wahhabism. A puritanical theology based on and so on that saw its, the, the relationship with Allah as a zero-sum game in which Allah's will can be perfectly known and you, you, you say this is what Allah wants and if you disagree then there's a problem with you, you are a fasik or a kafir and so on. Our problem, brothers and sisters, no longer Wahhabism in our day and age. I was among the first 
decades ago to point the finger at Wahhabism and say that is the problem in the Muslim world where today I am telling you Wahhabism is not the issue anymore. It still exists, but it's not significant anymore. What is far more significant is the theology of obedience to the state that is being propagated as an Islamic imperative all over the world. The state, wrong or right, must be obeyed. And with the theology is a theology that is its twin that says not only should we obey the state blindly, but that democracy is either haram or at least not that important. Under this theology, there are Muslims and Muslim organizations in particular, and Muslim leaders that have said that look at two inspiring women like Rashida Talib and Ilham Omar, and instead of rushing to back them up in their truthful narrative against the Trump government, that theology says, no, our priority is to blindly obey Trump and his government, and looks at inspiring and heroic women like these two congresswomen with a lot of skepticism and a lot of distance. Because today, under this theology, a Muslim is told that your entire tradition is not to create an autonomous, active, dynamic, thoughtful, moral human being, but to create a subservient, obedient, broken human being whose relationship to politics is simple obedience. And I'll tell you, societies that are raised on the concept of obedience to other human beings, you obey the ruler, and then you expect, because I grew up in societies like that, you obey the despotic ruler, and then a woman is expected to obey her despotic husband, and then the children are expected to obey their despotic parents, and before you know it, there's despotism in the school system, there's despotism in the family, there's despotism in society. In that broken, cowardly society, there can be no shahada. What are you bearing witness to? If, if you are not allowed to bear witness as to the simplest thing, uh, and that is the most obvious thing, and that is justice and injustice, what are you bearing witness to? You're bearing witness that X, Y, or Z prayed X number of rak'ahs? 
That's Allah is not going to ask you about that in the final day. Allah is not going to ask you who prayed how many rakahs or who fasted Ramadan. Allah knows whether you pray, whether you prayed or didn't pray. Allah will ask you, and that's a real test. What you, did you do about the mustadafin, the oppressed? What did you do about injustice? What did you do about suffering? In other words, those things that require jihad. That's what Allah will ask you about. Those things that require commitment and struggle and effort. A society built on despotism and obedience doesn't all only breed hypocrisy, but it also breeds cowardliness. People that grow up in despotic context, they learn to be hypocritical in their soul. They learn how to negotiate with power by lying and deceiving. That is why whenever you go to despotic societies, you find people they don't respect time. They say things like inshallah and they don't really mean inshallah. They say yes I'll do it and they don't do it. They say no I won't do it and they will do it. Despotism breeds dishonesty and lying and hypocrisy and raises cowards. People whose souls are broken, who learn that the only way they can assert their own autonomy and their sense of self is to lie, deceive, and pretend to be who they are not. Now, this is so serious because we live in a moment in history in which all types of theological orientations funded unfortunately by Western democracies like France, like Britain, like the Trump administration, and funded by the Emirat and Saudi that support and nurture theologies among Muslims that teaches them that their relationship to the powerful should be premised on obedience. Whether that is the Salafi Jami Madkhali position or the Sufi Bin Bayya type position or the uh, Jeffrey in Egypt, the Yemeni fellow, so-called scholar, Habib al-Jeffrey. People who go and sit with despots like Sisi in Egypt, people who go and sit with despots like Assad in Syria, People who go and sit with despots all over 
shake hands with them and say, may Allah bless you, you are wonderful. And they think that this is the, the soul of Islam, or that's at least the impression they give. Well, I'll tell you, that type of Islam is Islam's death. Islam exploded upon the world scene, and this is the Islam of the Prophet Ibrahim salam, all the way to Muhammad, that liberated human beings upon a very simple principle. We worship Allah, we obey Allah, and no one else. Worship of Allah, but we don't worship other human beings. Well, this type of Islam, which has always existed, by the way, but never, was never the dominant type of Islam until this day and age. This type of Islam comes in and makes that very basic proposition from the time of the Prophet Ibrahim meaningless. What does it mean that I worship Allah and don't worship other human beings if I am not allowed to be different, I am not allowed to oppose, I am not allowed to speak the truth, because if I do, I go to prison. And then you come and tell me Islam liberated me? It's the most intuitive thing in the world that you think, no, Islam didn't. I don't feel free in, a, in a, if I live in this despotic paradigm. It's very natural that people would say, this is why with the spread of this form of despotic Islam all over the Middle East, at the same time, atheism is an, is an at an all high in the Middle East. Because religion stopped making sense. When you teach people that you Islam requires you to obey someone like MBS or MBZ or or CC, or whoever it is. It is natural that our kids would say, well, what type of religion is this? These people, I see them jail, torture, kill, murder, do, do all types of horrible things. And you're telling me that it is my religious duty to obey? And then you want to be, me to believe that Islam liberated me so that I worship Allah and no one else? Well, I'm not buying it. And they leave Islam. They become atheists. That's why atheism, this is the defeated inside soul. Nothing, nothing turns kids away from Islam like hypocrisy. Our children are watching. Whether we, you know, witnessing is something that people do naturally, innately. You, you, you either educate people about the ethics of witnessing and put witnessing in its proper channels, or they will witness anyway, despite of you. So that is either I teach my child, okay, you know, here's the proper way of observing things, 
of asserting the proper ethics for making a point, for speaking, for objecting, for expressing dissent. I teach my child the ethics of engagement, or my child will witness anyway, will observe and witness anyway and keep it inside of him or her, and believe that his parents or the grown-ups are hypocrites. And if our children start thinking we're hypocrites, that's how they grow up to leave the faith. Now, I want to just give some very quick material examples. Right now, in our historical moment, we saw in the 90s a horrible, horrific genocide in Bosnia. We saw a horrible, horrific humanitarian disaster in Iraq that led to millions of people killed by our government. To the point that till now, we don't know how many Iraqis our government killed. And there's no funding for that type of research. We know that Islamophobia exploded, and we've talked about that in many contexts. There has been numerous documentations that Islamophobia was not just responsible for incidents like the New Zealand mosque, but that Islamophobia was also responsible for a genocide against the Rohingyas in Burma, Miramar or wherever. We also noticed that in this day and age, Muslims did very little to come to Bosnia's aid, the state of Bosnia. So while the Serbian state is powerful, while the Croatian state is powerful, the Serbian state, the one the Montenegro is powerful, the, the Bosnian state is very weak. It doesn't really exist. We also saw in our day and age that the Muslims did practically nothing about the Rohingyas. In fact, many Muslims, the way they treated the Rohingyas was horrible. What followed the Rohingyas is the genocide the horrific genocide against East Turkestan, the Muslims in China, which they call the Xinjiang Uyghur. province. Uyghur. Huh? The Uyghur. The, the Uyghur Muslims, which is East Turkestan several times was an independent Muslim state, by the way. And it, that East Turkestan was Muslim in the first century of Islam. They have been Muslim since the first century of Islam, the first hundred years. And they remained Muslim all these centuries. And several times they were in an independent state, even in 1935 was the last time they were independent. And then in 1949, that's where China annexed that Muslim country. We saw a horrible, 
genocide and concentration camps. And Muslims, again, not just did nothing, but actually supported China. Yesterday or a couple of days ago, Qatar withdrew its support of China. But most Muslim countries remain supporting China. Then we see a nationalistic Hindu state that is destroying the Indian democracy and turning it into a Hindu uh, authoritarian type of state because the democracy under Hindu nationalism for all practical purposes dying. That Hindu state annexed Kashmir and again Muslim countries did nothing. Not only that, but we find that investments remain as they are. We find that uh, the, uh, the Emirat is going to give the Indian Prime Minister some prestigious award. One of the most painful things for me is reading about how Amn al-Dawla in Egypt, the security forces in Egypt, arrest Chinese Muslims who came to Egypt to study at Azhar, they arrest these Azhari students, torture them, and then turn them over to the Chinese government. And the Azhar administration does absolutely nothing. Not even a protest. Now, this reminded me of a conversation long ago. I was speaking to a friend, one of these people who, unfortunately, anyway, I was speaking to a friend, an academic, and he was telling me, you know, I don't understand why Muslims keep focusing on Palestine, the Palestinians, Palestinians, Jerusalem. This was about a decade ago. You know, there are other oppressed Muslims in the world, and maybe we should get beyond this Palestinian issue now. You know, there are oppressed Muslims in Kashmir, oppressed Muslims in China, there are oppressed Muslims in Myanmar, and again, I'll remind you, this is a decade ago. And I told him, you know what? It is very simple. If Muslims sell out the Palestinians and sell out Jerusalem, Al-Quds, they sell out their sacred space, they will also sell out the Kashmiri, the Ugar, and the Rohingyas. At the time, he said, his point was, oh, you know, instead of focusing on the Palestinians, we should, I don't know, ethics, is our, ethics are indivisible. If you learn to sell out your sacred territory, the heart of the Muslim nation, Palestine, it is inevitable that you will sell out all else. I remember this conversation 
and reflected upon why is it that Muslim countries sold out the Ugor, sold out the Rohingyas, and sold out the Kashmiris, and sold out the Bosnians. I'll tell you why. Because before all of that, they sold out Jerusalem and the Palestinians. They learned to be cowards vis-a-vis -vis power. Their attitude towards power became one in which, you know, I'll bear witness, but I'll bear witness as to my Salah, which makes no sense. Allah knows your Salah. I'll bear witness as to my Psalm. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll ignore these things that are hard, that are difficult. And in order to ignore these things that are difficult, I must accept the principle of power as a normative principle. In other words, whoever is powerful, I must just adapt to and, and learn to live with rather than clash and resist. So that Israelis are powerful, I let, let go of Palestine. The, and when that type of attitude set in, all else was sold as well. We became orderless, tasteless, meaningless people. Things have reached a point where you find today, years ago, Daniel Pipes wrote an article which was absolutely historically absurd that basically said that the Aqsa Mosque, Muslims got it wrong over 1400 years, the Aqsa Mosque is not their holy mosque. What, what, during the Isra and Mi'raj, what the Prophet went to, what the Prophet went to was a, a little mosque in, close to Medina. I forgot even the name of the mosque, it's not important. In this day and age, because of this added theological attitude towards power, we found Muslims that started legitimating in order to avoid the principle of resistance. Because Israel is powerful, so they started saying things like, well, you know, the Aqsa Mosque is not really holy in Islam. Well, the Aqsa Mosque, you know, the Aqsa Mosque is really in close to Medina. The Aqsa Mosque is really somewhere in Sina. So much so that when Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, there was no reaction by Muslims. The attitude was, well, those in power, they, you know, it's okay with them, so we do nothing. And in fact, Muslim leaders in the United States continue to work with the Trump administration despite the Muslim ban and despite his position on Jerusalem. And some, like Hamza Yusuf, who still has followers, said things that are obscene, like Trump is God's servant and accepted the position with the Trump administration.
And some Muslim leaders even broke ranks with the wishes of Palestinians and with the intellectual and ethical boycott of a colonial administration, the, the right-wing criminal Netanyahu government, and broke ranks and visited Israel, which is basically bearing witness, not to justice, but bearing witness to the, the to exactly the opposite. You're bearing witness in favor of what is wrong against, against what is right. And you think Allah is not going to hold you responsible? So it was inevitable. It was inevitable. If we can see Syrians butchered in Syria the way they are, the Russians killing Syrians as if they are killing cockroaches. And we continue saying, ah, you know, we just do our salah, we just read our hadith books, and, and so on. If we can see what is happening in the Aqsa Mosque the first day of Eid, right-wing extremist settlers stormed the Aqsa Mosque, or the vicinity of the Aqsa Mosque, supported by Israeli military. And what was the reaction? Absolutely nothing. If we can do that, then of course we're going to sell out East Turkestan, and Chechnya, and Bosnia, and Kashmir. Let me even put it to you in an intellectually consistent fashion. Someone wrote me, told me a well-known Muslim teacher in the United States taught them that the hadith that says that it would be an authentic hadith, it's not. That says that, attributed to the Prophet that says that if I would have ordered anyone to prostrate to a human being to prostrate to another, I would have ordered a wife to prostrate to her husband. And that a teacher in the United States said, well, you know, listen, this is like when Yusuf's, the prophet Joseph, when his <coughs> brothers and his father prostrated to him, they prostrated to him out of love, and this is a similar thing. It's basically the prophet is saying to, uh, to, that wives should have a reverential, loving attitude towards husband as if they would prostrate to them. Now, of course, that might be acceptable because it's one thing to prostrate to a prophet because that's Allah's command. If Allah comes to me and through wahy, if the Prophet was here and Allah and, and the Prophet said, it's Allah's will that you prostrate to me, I would pro immediately. I would be happy to prostrate. But it is completely another to create an oppressive attitudinal paradigm in which wives look at husbands and husbands look at wives and say, my power relationship to you is that it is as if you ought to prostrate to me just like 
Yusuf's brothers prostrated to him. Now here, Yusuf had a great fadl, had great moral character that he demonstrated through a lifetime of hardship and suffering and prove, pro, proven himself time and again. But what has husbands earned? What have husbands done to earn that type of attitude from wives? No, it's a matter of, oh, that's what Allah wants. That Allah wants wives to look at husbands as if they are reverential. Well, you know what? This is fundamentally part and parcel of the power dynamic that I am talking about. That passive, defeatist, quietest power dynamic. You look at those in power in government with that same type of reverential attitude. You know, I, I, I don't prostrate before you, but intellectually, it's as if I, and I, I do prostrate before you. Look at the way Muslims treat MBS or MBZ or CC or they prostrate before them morally, even if they don't do it physically. And by God, if, 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 if CC tomorrow asks the entire Egyptian population to prostrate before him, they will. I mean, he, he said in a speech, it's as if Allah gives him wah directly. But that same type of attitude seeps into the social fabric and reasserts and reaffirms other ill and deadly power dynamics like patriarchy. So if you teach obedience towards those in power, right or wrong, it is inevitable that you will also teach obedience of women towards men and children towards in other words, you, you assert that paradigm of the power of the, the, in which the powerful claim a righteous power over the disempowered and feel justified in doing so, and the disempowered see no virtue in resisting. If you do that, then Islam is dead. And here when I say that Islam is dead, I don't mean just the Islam of Muhammad I mean the Islam of Ibrahim from the time of Ibrahim. Then religion becomes the opiate of the people. Exactly as Marx said. Remember Marx said about religion? Religion is the opiate of the oppressed. The powerful give religion to the oppressed so that they won't re resist. then what Marx said would be absolutely true. That's the problem. People like Hamza Yusuf and Bin Baya and Habib Jeffrey, they think they're just being smart and playing, you know, jockeying for they don't they don't have historical knowledge, they don't have philosophical knowledge, they don't have ethical knowledge, they don't understand that when they become the embodiment of religion is the opiate of the people, 
then it's game over. Then you teach cowardice. Then you teach hypocrisy. Then you teach patriarchy. Then whether you like it or not, sooner, sooner rather than later, you will also teach things like, well, what's wrong with slavery? Oh, yeah, you know, okay, so what's wrong with it? You would teach moral relativism to the point that there is no ethical backbone to the faith in which you preach. Then the ethics of your faith becomes Salah and Zakah and Psalm, and that's it. This is very serious. All you can do is to bear witness. All I can do is to bear witness. Because I see the future in the same way that decades ago I saw the danger of Wahhabism. I now tell you Wahhabism is gone. And the real danger is this quietest, pacifist, obedient theology that has been funded by very powerful sources like the Emirat and Saudi and, and others. The American government and the British government and the French government have poured an enormous amount of money into funding that type of Islam. And that type of Islam is death. Because it is an Islam without ethics, without a vision, without a methodology, without a goal. It is an Islam that basically is just an opiate. A feel-good, instantaneous Islam that will only attract the most cowardly and the most intellectually dull. The stupidest people will be attracted and the most cowardly people will be attracted to that type of Islam. But the best intellects and the best hearts and the best souls will say, there's nothing in me, for me in that type of faith. It is not the Islam of Malcolm X. It is not the Islam of any of the heroic figures that established Islam in this world. It is not the Islam of bearing witness with truth and resistance. And it's not the Islam of authenticity. It is exactly the opposite of all of that. Allah forgive our sins and guide us towards a better path. Make us bear witness for you and in you and through you, Ya Allah. And not bear witness in order to justify the injustice and the excesses of the powerful and mighty. Yeah. 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 Yeah.